Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing author Shugri Syed Sal about her recently published memoir, The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. Honest and tender, The Last Nomad is a riveting coming-of-age story of resilience, survival, and the shifting definitions of home. We'll be talking about Shugri's personal history of trauma, civil strife, asylum, and ultimately triumph as she speaks of a youth divided between opposing worlds. Her poetic prose radiates with deep empathy and sensitivity, a reflection of the gift for storytelling she says she inherited from her grandmother. So before I bring on author Shugri Syed Sal, I want to tell you a bit about her and her background. Shugri Syed Sal was born in the desert of Somalia in 1974 and spent her early years living as a nomad. She immigrated to North America in 1992 after the Civil War broke out in her home country. She attended nursing school at Pacific Union College and graduated with honors. And although The Last Nomad is her first book, Shugri has been storytelling since she could talk. From her grandmother and the nomadic community in which she was raised, she heard stories and learned of their power to entertain, teach, and transform. The Last Nomad is a fascinating look at a disappearing culture. It is told from the perspective of a young girl growing into womanhood in a place where women's value and virtue hinges upon the actions of men. Shugri's stories of bravery and resilience intersplice with those of everyday joy and struggle. They show her forever navigating the place where the two worlds collide with grace and skill. As Shugri tells an incredible and vivid true story about the loss of the nomadic lifestyle as well as her home in Somalia due to years of violence, war, and instability. Shugri was sent at the age of six to live with her nomadic grandmother in the desert. And though the desert was a harsh place threatened by drought, predator and enemy clans. It also held beauty, innovation, centuries of tradition, and a way for a young Sufi girl to learn courage and independence from a fearless group of relatives. Shugri grew to love the freedom of roaming with their animals and the powerful feeling of community found in nomadic rituals and the oral storytelling of her ancestors. Taken from the desert by her strict father and then displaced along with millions of others by the Somali Civil War, Sugri first fled to a refugee camp on the Kenyan border and ultimately to North America to learn yet another way of life. A vivid, true story about her family's lost way of life, Sugri writes with a frankness and a fierce feminism of trying to break free of the patriarchal beliefs of her culture, of her forced female genital mutilation, of the loss of her mother and her growing need for independence. Honest and tender, The Last Nomad is a riveting coming-of-age story of resilience, survival, and the shifting definitions of home. Booklist just glowingly reviewed the book, calling it a thoughtful and resonant celebration of the human spirit. Indeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation Shugri and I had earlier this week. Welcome, Shugri. It's really wonderful to have you here with me on Be More Now. Oh, thank you so much, Blake, for having me. I'm so appreciative, really. I'm glad and delighted to be part of this show today. Oh, definitely. So why don't you talk just a little bit about your background and your book and why you're on the show with me today? Well, I um, my name is Shukrisal. I'm the author of The Last Nomad. Um, it's I at the moment I actually work as a nurse, but um, I was once a desert. I uh, the book come about because I really uh, for wanted to write the story of my life, uh, something to leave uh, behind. Um, you know, in African culture, it says uh, there's an African proverb that goes, "When an elder dies, a library is burned." You know, I definitely wanted to to didn't want the wisdom of all of the things that I have experienced from being a daughter of the desert all the way here in California in northern California so I am um, I was born to um, a well-educated mother a father I meant uh, and, and a mother and uh, when I finished the first grade, my parents fought bitterly over my um, destiny and my mother I was born as fourth daughter and she was adamant at giving, uh, giving 
one of her daughter as a gift of labor to the nomadic world she comes from. And since she moved into the city with my father, that means this is not a job for a boy. It's a job uh, for a girl, domestic as it was in that time. And my father really at that time believed he held an, uh, um, a few that he actually wanted to educate a daughter in a culture that did not care to educate a daughter. So I was given, um, I was born as my mother's fourth daughter. And one day, you know, she decided I will be that daughter. So she gave me as a gift of labor to her nomadic mother. So the book starts literally in the first chapter is... Um, uh, me messing up something in the desert and running for my dear life. So uh, the book is many of that, the story of the desert, um, uh, followed by, you know, going to rite of passage, female circumcision, and then many more things, Somali civil war, heartache, um, borders, um, being stranded in the borders of Kenya and Somalia and all of that, and eventually immigrating to North America. And a lot more amazing thing, it just takes you the journey of my life. And, you know, obviously, had my mother's plan worked out, I would be today living in the desert in search of uh, ceaseless, and ceaseless pursuit for water and, you know, um, Hurting my goats and you know camels and all of that, dealing not hurting my camels, but leading my camel to get water. You know, we were people who move with land, with for water. So every six months, the nomads are in move. You know, then we we searching for water, we searching for grazing land for our livestock. Would you like to read an excerpt from your book? Yeah. So let me start it this prologue. I am the last nomad. How can I be the last one? Nomad is still in that far away desert to where I grew up. So how could I make a, such a bold statement? What I'm really trying to say is I am the last person in my direct line to have one sleep like that. And now I feel like the soul keeper of my family story. As I sit here in my home in California, weaving my tell for you the weight of that responsibility urges me on. All of my ancestors on both sides of my family were nomads. They traveled the East African desert in search of a grazing land for their livestock and the most precious resource of all, water. When they exhausted the land and the clouds disappeared from the horizon, their accumulated ancestral knowledge told them where to move next to find greener pastures. They loaded their hats and belongings into the most obedient camels and herded their livestock to a new home. My nomadic family was at the mercy of the weather. At the end of July, the long dry season, when the clouds finally rumbled with rain, we looked up to the sky with renewed hope. As the desert quenched its thirst, the red earth crackled back to life. Responsibilities is adults welcome the rain with drums, singing and dancing. Children get fat and healthy, sitting around the the fire at night, they talk in the folktales and poems passed down generation, passed down from generation to, to generation. But despite the renewed abundance of food, we knew we had to preserve some of, the, some of it for the dry season to follow. Sometimes the drought hit harder than usual, killing both livestock and people. Bones and twigs soon litter the train where goats and sheep once happily grazed. Those times, my ancestors ceased singing under the moon, their drums hardened, and they longed for good news. Children no longer heard stories by the fire, and an old poet will bellow to the desert, forcing his agony. He will speak of a dying land, taking his precious camels. His mournful poem will then travel through, uh, through time and across borders to remedy the pain of his people for years to come. My three children raised in California know nothing of nomadic, of the nomadic life except for the stories I have shared. As I sit here in my, as I sit here now in my comfortable suburban home, listening to my teenager son excitedly tell me about his favorite YouTuber, I am reminded acutely of the void between my past and my present. I speak of a world in which he has little understanding. And an old African proverb says, when an elder dies, a library is burned. I'm not yet an elder, but I do feel like a portal between two worlds. I am the last person in my immediate family who holds this particular library of knowledge. 
as years pass, this the sense of urgency I feel about sharing my experience with my children and the world grows. In my imagination, I have shared my stories with each with each of you many times as we gather under a clear black sky. It's shiny stars, sorry, it is shining stars guiding my ancestral wisdom. I have imagined you leaning into me as if I had brought the news of water after a drought. I have poured us more tea, for I knew it was going to be a long night under the luminous moon. I want to get this tale of mine right. The fire between us has crackled with excitement as if to notch my story along. But now it's no longer enough for me to just imagine telling you my story. I feel the need to bring you all to the fire and into my world. I love that. Mm, That's beautiful. I really feel invited into this way of life that so many of us do not know anything about. Yeah, thank you. At all. I mean, I, I was traveling through... Syria, Jordan, and Egypt in the, you know, 1988 about, and I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity to travel through the Syrian desert with a lorry truck with a nothing but a compass and encountering Bedouins and got mm-hmm. invited got to spend the night inside, or not spend the whole night, but sleep outside a Bedouin tent and spend the whole evening with Aww. a group of nomads Aww. and how everybody was so generous and willing to share anything with us. So I do feel like I got an opportunity to glimpse just a little bit of what the nomadic way of life was. And I think one thing that was so astounding to me was this simple concept of a lantern with a the mirror behind it. And it the way the lantern and the mirror illuminated the entire space and just the cook stove in the middle of the floor. As a Los Angeles child who grew up in the suburbs (laughs) and lived in Venice Beach, I thought, am I? And it really did shift how I look at the world. So it's something that is so important for us to understand because we're so addicted to convenience. Why do you think it's important for the nomadic culture to live on? Well, um, to me, I feel like uh, you're asking me why I feel for the nomadic cultures to live on. I, I do really believe that the nomadic culture is, uh, has a deep history of um, uh, oral tradition, right? Um, and we part, and that is what we are losing, right? Because to be a nomad or to be, it's to gather with people, you know, to tell each other, to impart wisdoms with each other. So for me, I really feel like even today, it's part of me, not only am I walking and hiking just like my ancestors did, but I am telling, I still continue to be a storyteller. And I think it is that wisdom that really imparted on me as a child, hearing like a century old story that just was carried from generation to generation through oral stories. And I think there's a beauty about when something is carried through through oral traditions because somehow it really gets into the brain deeper level, you know, and that, and then that just story of, and then you tell that story to the next generation and it, it leaves its own. I feel like in this world of electronic written, I think we can benefit. We no longer as humans listen each other. Yes, there are times electronics save us and it is good, but at the same time, oral tradition is, and that social value it, it, it encompasses, it's what we need in this world, in this nowadays, of, you know, of people like you say that little experience you had in the desert to where you were just sitting with people and that coziness right today and that story they told you i'm sure today is part of you it, it, it lives on you after all these years you're telling me that is what you remember you know isn't that fascinating itself to me you know that's so true well you live in sonoma county correct yeah, I live in Sonoma County. Right. Sure. So yeah. as a Sonoma County person, I think a lot about, you know, what Sonoma County and Mendocino County and so many counties in California have endured over the last few years in terms of fires mm-hmm. and in terms yeah. of um, the devastation to property and, you know, mm-hmm. lives and property and everything else. And in some ways, people have been forced into these nomadic ways of existence that they never expected to, to mm-hmm. do. Have you found yourself having feelings that come up around the witnessing or whatever your experiences in your life around that? It's very interesting. Um, that's a very good question that you asked me because I, I remember um, 
two Octobers ago, maybe three Octobers ago, when we had the really first devastating fire, Santa Rosa fire that jumped the highway to cause even more destruction, destruction and threaten actually at the time to engulf all of us and kill us. And I remember um, and that night I actually felt like I couldn't sleep as it can feel the souls of people that were really suffering. And then um, in the morning, as our family tried to just get ready to get out of here because there was so many warning coming, I remember I find myself standing the same way as I did that young girl in Mogadishu trying to flee for her life, right? I'm standing, I said, what is important enough for me to pick right now, right? Because I like, like, like that time, I'm about to run. I'm, what comes to mind? Do I grab pictures? At that time, of course, I didn't have a luggage, so I put everything, some of it in pillow. Everybody just saddled themselves however they could. They carried themselves whatever they could carry that time. But do you see that just feeling, Blake, of just coming back and saying, oh, my God, that feeling again, once again, embodying me as I try to flee for my life. It's not a good feeling. And and I think, if anything, for those fellow um, Sonoma County and Mendocino County people, again, we share a humanity, right? Many people may not have known the world I'm talking about, what it's like to flee your home, what it's like to lose everything. But many, at least, you know, what's like to live with uncertainty of a fire hitting any time, drought, right? basically being responsible for that. So I think um, it is that humanity that is, again, connecting us. And I find myself really feeling the pain of my people here again, meaning my people of of Sonoma County, uh, feeling the pain of my people of Sonoma County, as I felt for my people of Mogadishu. So today this is home, and I am pretty much relating to all of the droughts and everything that's hidden in my country again, in my home, Sonoma County again. I'm physically aware of it, if I may say, and feel bad for it. I think you said that beautifully, that yeah. we are in kind of unrest that's happening. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, your book, you talk about civil unrest, instability, and violence at the start, especially of the Somali Civil War and that displacement. And I have a very good friend who's from Venezuela, and he speaks of how what's happening right now reminds him of when he ultimately fled his country and the way that so many of these divisive techniques were used. The tools of civil war are very well known, and even when the people are having those tools used upon them, it's harder for us to sift through and see it because we haven't got that perspective and distance, Mm whereas somebody like Mm -hmm. you, you have Mm -hmm. that. Can Mm -hmm. you speak to that and what it was like (laughs) for you? And, you know, in in your book, you go into some of the details of life in a refugee camp that was so sudden and so it's such a big, wide change. Yeah. Um, What I learned to... I have learned to always be, even now, I'm always prepared. I remember telling people, like, if 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 the worst hits, at least I, I think I can slaughter a goat and perhaps, you know, skin it. You know, there are some innate skills that just exist on me. Um, I mean, I probably will start hunting the deer of Sonoma County, will find them so serious. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a real hunting. I'm sorry, dear, but I'm going to eat you today, you know, and I'm going to, uh, you know, dry your meat to live for a long time, too. So I think in that sense that survival um, of it is woven into me. But I think, like you said, for, um, if you're asking me, um, the question you're asking me is, are you asking me how is it, what am I using to survive here, which is one part of it, right? Or what is the other part? I would imagine you have a different kind of empathy or a different understanding oh my, um, or does oh my it bring goodness. you to your own PTSD, so to speak, around, oh, my gosh, it's happening again. Like, how does that? Well, well, I feel like for me, I really feel um, it, it, it is I feel so bad, like when I'm watching, for example, I'm more triggered by acute dis- uh distress such as a bad thing such as you know when in afghanistan where people were falling off the airplane were that desperate and i know that uh, and uh, what is um, the taliban is waiting to do even more 
wreak more havoc on them or destroy them. In that idea, I feel like Al-Shabaab doing to Somalis too. So I, yeah, when I think of really like that, I also feel like, like whatever that happened in Sonoma County or whatever that happened to even Somalia, I also see, saw what humanity, I see now and saw even that too, what humanity is capable. Do you know what I mean? The, in the yeah. midst of all these tragedies and traumas and triggers, I see people um, capable of great compassion. So sometimes when something happened to us or when uh, when you lived in a big villa where you were not sharing and it burned down or and then you have to reckon with it, you're now feeling and what an average person is feeling, right? Like we are all are losing so much. And perhaps the gift of that, as bad as it is, is, is you, once again, your empathetic self is awakened to see that this connection of that this earth as it burns down and you know breathes its um, breath of of leave me alone back to us because you know we have treated so badly you know and that the fact that something bad that's happening in Africa can even affect us here too so it's showing us how we are all interconnected and that that humanity that we can extend to each other yeah i am triggered at the same time i find myself um grateful that um that people are also being very kind so many people took in so many people that they didn't know all of a sudden there were we were so humbled and we were so kind and we were so caring for each other you know my goodness i have friends who were uh, cooking food for shelters and all of that and i think there was a beauty that i don't know if that is the best way to look at it but i also saw beauty of what we are capable for it so yeah i am triggered but at the same time i was you know, I'm helping a lot of people, and I, I know how to live with my problems. You know, I meditate, right. I hike, and I am giving money to so many people. That's why I always say people, give not only when something bad is upon you. Give all the time. So, for example, if, if you survived cancer, you know, give somebody in poor kid in, in Africa or in Asia or anywhere in the country, give to somebody because that energy of you giving will come back to you in another time. And if you're greedy and doesn't want to give anything, it's possible that you end up getting a stupid ticket that takes that money away from you. So you may as well donate, you know what I mean? Donate and help others uh, be awakened to other people's need. Uh, read a lot and see what others are going through. Um, I don't think money would have the hate they would have refugees had they been themselves a refugee. But I think the closest ancestry they've been through is fire and floods. And so that kind of levels up our humanity because like death and many other disasters, disasters don't care who they attack, right? right. <laughs> attack across the spectrum, you know, could be poor or rich, yeah, yeah. I want to take a quick moment and remind you that you're listening to Be More Now right here on KZWX. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm talking to Shugri Syed Sal about her book, The Last Nomad. In your book, your grandmother plays such a, a strong role, and she, yeah. you, you, she gave you such courage and independence, and you learned so much in the, mm-hmm. about a way of life that is disappearing. How are some of the lessons that you learned from her? I mean, it sounds like you just spoke to that, but are there other things that you've now incorporated and made your own that have helped you go through the world, especially during these really difficult times? You know, I think one thing I've learned is I've learned that my grandmother was such a regal woman. And the desert, like I said many times, is one of the harshest place to live. I mean, as we were sleeping in, our, in front of our hats or in our hats, you know, made of branches and whatever, little grass woven things, whatever, um, we were hearing the lions and hyenas and wild dogs and scorpions biting, you know, scorpions bite you, snakes bite you, um, you know, you um, in, in our constant danger, clans would go to war, you know, um, 
wild animals kill your livestock, sleep in you, you know, and you, there's not a hospital you can run. So if I learn anything, I've learned that deep resilience that from my grandmother, you know, and many of the tribes that I lived with, not only my tribe, but other tribes, you know, just to, seeing how they were interconnected and how the, uh, like, remember, I, we were just talking about in, in Sonoma County, when we have a problem, what do we do? Humans are social beings. We social gather and we start helping each other, right? And that for gathering and helping each other is a woven into the nomadic life. You cannot be selfish. You have to help others when they are in need, you know? So somebody will have a danger and they will just follow to the desert and some person will hear it and offer them help. Somebody will be traveling in the desert and they will come, they will be traveling 40 kilometers, 50 kilometers, and then eventually come upon um, a family living in a hat and their goats, and that family will slaughter goats for them or feed them, and they will be on their way. So that hospitality was woven in. So for me, I find myself, unlike a lot of people who their life was really hard when the, the pandemic hit, I, I went to work and I worked so many hours, 14, 15 hours trying to save America, you know. And it was the time, let's say, uh, America of Trump, right, where so many people have been uh, brought into the hate for immigrants and all of that. And here I am working as a nurse, staying, saving, you know, my, our America, which I call my America too. You know what I mean? So I feel like, if anything, my grandmother is watching this regal woman tame the desert and and was a poet who no one must have it in. She will create really intricate, terrible poem, even for no, her no good husband, which was not my grandfather, but the man she married after after my grandfather. So yeah, I really felt like um, she prepared me for life. There is nothing that cannot come my way that I can't handle, you know? And I'm not saying that I'm not gonna find difficulties but I know I will always come out in the other end, and I've been through a lot in this life, yeah. I think that's really well mm -hmm. said. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. When you say you've been through a lot, this is a very difficult subject that I believe many people in this country are still not completely aware of, but you talk about the process of female genital mutilation in the book mm -hmm. and how it's mm -hmm. normal and how it's part of the life. So can you speak about that and the practice and now and... Well, as far as the refugee, I do have a lot of plans of, of what I'm going to do about that. Um, so we will go into maybe later if we get a chance. But as far um, but female circumcision, you know, like the nomad, I realized like the Somali nomad, which book, this book really talked about, gave people a deep insight and many actually told me they really wish to know more. Just like that, Blake, when I went, when it was time to go to the female circumcision, I really wanted to give you insight to that world. And many have have said, wow, I really didn't know that no one ever, everybody, maybe people in the past, I read many books on uh, Many other Somali women, not many, like few other Somali women have written about it. And and the way they wrote about it was like they touch on it as a little thing, uh, but it was always like we were always untangled uh, um, or entangled in their own victimhood. Did that make sense? That we couldn't see really what is the culture explained to me. So for me, what I did is as a nurse, I was explaining to you the four categories. And then I went to, to that girl who was lining up so proudly to be circumcised, believe it or not. Because I wanted to tell you, it's something I've been groomed on for so many years. And had I not gone through that, had my grandmother did not even do that to me, no one would have uh, uh, married me. And I would have been a discarded person, isolated um ostracized, uh, put down, and, you know, really, um, no one is, you know, people would have said, this is a girl who lost their mother, her mother, and no one even cared enough to do that for her. Poor hair. She had her, she has her Twitter with her, if I would have grown up. But, you no. Know, so, and then throughout, I just explained to you, and now somebody said, wow, I, 
I mean, and this is confusing to people. Oh, you are liberal. You don't believe this, yet you took a, a, a path that you just become that girl, embody that girl again to show us what it feels. So I really wanted to show to you this is part of part of our culture. We have done centuries, years old, and and it is something, it was done to me, to my grandmother, and to my grandma's mother, all the four women I knew, you know. And then in the end, I show you how I unshackle myself, and I don't want this to happen to my children. Obviously, my girls didn't even know what female circumcision is, and the idea of it is, it's really like, scares them and weirded out and I'm glad they are weirded out and they go mama that is disgusting and weird yeah I'm glad they're typical teenagers in America they're weirded out so to me that that makes me very happy um as far as uh, Rufici honestly I personally give so much money I'm the one who makes like so I give so much money to people in need and um uh, of my family and and I'm talking about so much money I can't even say it. it's like people are gonna say wow what are you living off of if you give that much money because if when you are the one who make it and your father fertilized the whole country, <laughs> basically they're all your siblings. <laughs> my, my case, 23 of them, but still, there's a lot of them. Yeah, so I do that. And, but I tell people, you know, um, honestly, there are a lot people can do to help out with people who are immigrants who are coming. First of all, be kind to them and be human with them and just help them socially, like, you know, be their neighbor, take them, talk to them, teach them English, uh, take them to the immigration, fill up papers for them. There's a lot people can help. And then for me, I'm really, right now, I visited Minneapolis um, um, Minnesota um, and all of the, um, and St. Paul, where I start connecting with the Somali people. My goal is also um, eventually um, connect with more refugees. And but I do that through my community and many other the communities that live there. So it is a process I am inching toward it, and I am new to this. This is my first book and I'm, I'm, I'm heading to that slowly, you know, taking my time, looking at the best organization to help, you know. Um, okay. Honestly, even for me, opening some kind of um, empowering the girls, something in Somalia or somewhere where I know that I can educate because when you educate a girl, like my father said, you educate a village and educated girls do better for their families too. So, and they can untangle themselves problems such as an early marriages or other thing, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the things when I first discovered the female circumcision and the realization that it was really, it's promoted by women through women. And, you know, because that's the, mm -hmm. and I, I know this will be very controversial to even mention on the air here on KZUX, but I, I, I think of it very similarly to some of the, research I've done and some of the reading and some of the people I've spoken about circumcision in men and this kind mm-hmm. of idea listening to the yeah, 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 talking yeah. about how the way that it's taught is that there's zero pain the baby's so young they don't feel anything and oh, they do. Yeah, exactly they do. and and that's kind of the same idea if we cut the tails off of dogs and well they don't know no one feels anything I know mm-hmm. mothers and friends of mine who've had fights with their partners, you know, to the point of ultimately ruining their marriage over the decision of whether or not to circumcise their son. And so it's very yeah. interesting because I think that it, it does apply in contemporary time, and yet it's such one of those very, very distasteful subjects, and people get really upset when you bring it up. And I feel like we're in a time well, right now where there's it, so yeah. many things we're not allowed to talk about, and we have to start talking about it with compassion no, no, and understanding for have. each other. It's interesting you say that because I, when I, I was a young mother when I first moved to here, right? I had my children very young, so I actually circumcised my son. And I, I remember thinking they didn't do a good job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because this is what I grew up and I never even thought, like I was told, I'm like a woman who went female circumcision. So 
circumcising my son wasn't a big deal with me. But it's funny, as I educate myself, and it is so part of me that the idea of both culturally and religiously to, to, to cut the foreskin is so part of me. And in, in, for us, the boys, he was circumcised, not as babies, by the way not as babies they're circumcised when they're seven or eight or six yeah. when they're older definitely so, I, the idea of doing to a baby was actually a little bit like we uh, it's clearly um uh, weeded out Easier. but at the same right. time i was programmed to follow what i know to be as a mother but uh, uh now um Obviously, I'm having different kind of conversation as I get older and, you know, um, I head into my 30s, you know, because I had my children when I was in my 20s, uh, late mid-20s and late 20s. And so it, it is like this question of like when first time somebody brought up the idea of not circumcising boys, I was like, what? Like, that is crazy but i find myself because someone brought it up i'm now listening you know what i mean i'm not right. sure what it means but at least to listen and to question and you know there was a talk about actually boys who were uncircumcised or um not uncircumcised were more likely to catch uh, the virus hiv virus and all of that so i'm listening to trying to hear the data you know just to start same way we are in the midst of this virus that caused so much controversy, right? You wouldn't think right. science will, will cause, but the way we are heading to humanity will soon argue whether men went to the moon or whether the earth is in circle, you know? <laughs> you know uh, There's a lot of big things to, happening right now, yes, most definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'm like watching, I'm saying we're about to like debunk so many, t- t- we're saying everything is not true to the point to like soon an ordinary man who walks on the street could, could, could pretend to be your surgeon, you know, could show right. up, like I can do surgery because the way people are going is like I, I don't know how we end up this too we are in a, a head-on collision with science and everything that we used to live by you know and uh, right. people always had their religion but the reality is uh, science and surgeries are something you cannot argue about it you know well that, that's you, true but I think that there there's an understanding that there's a yeah. status quo type of science and then there's oh, other yeah, yeah. science that's being pushed down and silenced and that's been happening since the yeah. beginning of science, yeah. you know, and it's the way that we talk about history is written by the victors. And so there are some voices that get more play and are louder and it takes a that long time. You think that, about just quantum yeah. physics, how long it's taken for certain yeah. ideas to come forward. And those are even the kinds Darwin, of things that even, we have to stay open yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. Even Darwin, they say there was a time that he oh. was, um, he was being shut because his wife was very religious and she wouldn't let him him to, to yes. talk about evolution. So there was a lot that, but you know, there are some, the beauty of human nature is it, the beauty of education. That's why we go to education. It's you can differentiate uh, something um, fake from real, right? Uh, I know my daughters uh, are learning in school how to take something from a, a, a paper from newspaper or not a newspaper but a paper you read a paper and um from the internet sorry and wikipedia which is not true most of the time and and how to authenticate see if something is um real or faked or how to do the background research on it you know but um, having said that you know we have to really like i said we're like we wouldn't be locked in this um some things also we have to careful things like the pandemics i really think had it not politicized is that the word having not taken the tone it took we would have had more success you know because oh, most i do believe yeah i On do both believe sides. Actually, i mean i think all sides of the pandemic have gotten really blurred and so what who's the people that are suffering yeah. are the human yeah who are yeah. very confused and swimming around and a lot of information that people just Oh, my can't. God. And it's yeah. a confusion. Like I was talking about the other day, like we have, I have now my two shots, and I know people who have their two shots and then are nervous because there are two kinds of people. People who, who were always nervous are now not going to rest until they get their fifth shots, okay? Right. That's where we're heading. And, and I'm like, no, you have your two shots. So 
by suggest and third shot, which some people need, right, and some people don't, it, it, it put in the mind that I'm not safe anymore with the two shots. So if you were a person who was prone to, uh, to anxiety about things, you're just going to not be happy until you get 50 shot, fifth shot. Yeah. And the person who uh, don't like too many shots may, may be said, okay, like I don't even want to get any shot to begin with. So it's like really create, I don't want to fear from where we're heading, but it's just really too much confusion. But I honestly think like, again, people need compassion, understanding and things to be explained to them, not ridicule them. Because as a nurse, I find people who genuinely looking for information and are getting from a wrong place. And if I take the time and explain to them and I said, you know, just take your time and answer that question with humanity and not ridiculous, I, I really find people lacing. It's the same thing I used to tell. A lot of people who actually fascinated used to be <laughs> my Republican friends were more easily fascinated and then my hippie friends were not fascinating. So I was like, it looked like now to me it switched. I'm like, what is going on, people? You know, but yeah, it's, it's a very I'm unique not, time. I mean, I think that the information yeah. is overload. And, and, and I think that you spoke very clearly in that sense of compassion and taking the so. time have to, to have, have real discourse. And what's happening is, I, I believe on all sides of this issue, there's a lot of disdain and calling the other side stupid and ridicule. Yeah. And it's been like this for as long as I've been a, alive on earth. There's a, a saying, too smart by half. Anyone can find anything to justify anything. And that's what we're in right now. And yeah, so it's, yeah. Here's my justification versus your justification. And yeah, it's really hard to have a real dialogue when that's going on. And I pray that we as a humanity, as American society mm-hmm. and civilization, we can find a way to bridge these differences between the sides. Yeah, you have. I have a lady one time, um, we were on a, on a place um, in a gathering for our children, and I you know, I was being respectful, so, uh, you know, I gave her my elbow, you know, I, uh-huh. everybody was, some people were wearing um, masks, some people, but I don't know whether she's okay me to shake her hand out of respect, and this is not long ago, I just gave her, and she said, that's weird, put that away, she was very rude to me, and, and uh-huh. I felt like, oh, you know, I felt like in her righteousness, the way she approached me was, not nice and cruel and disrespectful. So to me, that reminds me, whatever walk of life I am, I have to must approach it with kindness, right? And and I didn't say anything. I said, that's okay if you don't want. And then in the end, I couldn't even be mean to her back when she wanted to talk to me when she comes to me. But when she asked me, I said, hey, I don't think that was a kind way you did it. Like, I got it. Like, I'm vaccinated. Yeah. You have your choice not to be vaccinated. I'm not here. You're assuming that I'm your enemy. Therefore, you just decided. We're both black women, yet you decided you're going to be mean to me because you think you're so righteous, you know? I'm confused. Like, you confused me, I said. So in the end, you know, I just think that is a reminder that when we think we have the upper hand, we need to think compassion for the other, right? Either way, who is keeping a track of everybody, right? Who is making sure that enough data is connected like the first two vaccinations, not the third one is like not pharmaceutical saying, hey, go haywire, right? So I want to have a conversation about, I love when, you know, about the third shot and the data on that one, you know, let's not rush and let's have enough data. And I always go with enough data. So, yeah, there was a time I was like, I don't know about the third shot. I really want to get enough data and make sure that big pharmacy are not just getting their big shot. So we're not on one way. People assume if you are for vaccination, you want to get 10 vaccination. That's not the case. We still want to get the facts. And if you are anti-vaccination, you know, they think you never want to test vaccination. Of course, we still are getting our polio people who didn't get the vaccination. It is possible they are still vaccinating their kids for other diseases, for other viruses or diseases, right? They may be getting their polio shots or um, pneumococcal shots and all of this. It's just they are, this one is just finicky for them. So I don't know. I still feel like we, like that 
I remember how that woman made me, and I think compassion is the way to go still. Yeah, and I think that goes for all places. I think that there are so many people who just need to respect. It's surprising to witness people being so horrible to each other, and I do feel some of these things are being encouraged. There's a certain level of disdain that is being encouraged, and I think we as humans have to remind ourselves that that's not our nature. We have to remember that usually behind fear is this sorrow, right? We're all very sad for what's happening in our way of life, this country, this world. It's just harder to feel the sorrow. It's so much easier to feel anger. Yeah. And I think if somebody doesn't want that, we cannot force them, but... Uh, People who want it should get it, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you yeah. and I aren't going to be able to solve this problem. We are talking about no, this. No, we, we are running yeah. out of time. And I, I really appreciate your willingness to have this conversation. It doesn't matter what I believe or what you believe. What matters is that we get an opportunity to have expressions. And absolutely. we need to hear yeah. more of that everywhere. Uh, yeah, I am willing always. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And it's very scary. It's very scary for people because there's always that fear of rejection. And I would imagine that you as an immigrant in this country, all the different ways, you're in California, right? So you think that maybe it's a little easier for you here. But I imagine that as you were coming into the country here, some of the things that you had to learn, you had to learn very quickly a brand new society that includes, you know, elevators and washing machines and I would imagine refrigeration things you don't have in the nomadic way of life. And so I, I, I pray that everybody was treating you with compassion and helping you to learn your new way of life. And it was really, yeah, it was really hard. Like I, I, that's why I tell people now, when you see a newcomer, please, you know, hold them by the hand and show them way. Because, you know, like my husband and I were talking about the other day, was it my, no, my sister was, I think, and my husband joined the conversation about all the people that uh, her relative is trying to take an escalator and everybody just creating a pile of people because no one knows in their nervousness people were you know creating a human avalanche you know <laughs> just because honestly there's a new thing and to have someone to go with you even the, as you navigate you know even driving here is to me I always admire when a newcomer comes and they learn the language and they are really doing well in school you have no idea that person is a genius because not only would they have to adapt to your world so quickly, but they have to learn all of that in such a, it's like a computer speed, you know? And so, um, you know, don't think somebody is acting stupid and confused. Don't, because it's a so foreign concept to them. It's like if I drop you in a, a, with an alien, you know, uh, and, and ask you, go ahead and survive among them. You don't know their language. Even you can sign and they could be, like you could be their next dinner if you sign the wrong way, you know? Right. Like, so what I'm saying is you would want someone to take your hand and show you. And to me, I really, like, notice people when they are struggling. Like, I listen to when somebody's paying, and if they say, oh, I don't have that many, I quickly step in. I said, hey, it's okay. I got it. You know, I help out people, you know. I remember one time I was on a line on a Starbucks, and a guy ordered all of this stuff and then realized, he doesn't have them, his card didn't work. And he sat down and I can see he's trying to figure out. I just went behind his back and paid for it. And then I told the lady not to say, you know, and then she insisted to know who it was. And I thought I offended him. And I said, it was, it was me finally. And he said, no, thank you. I'm going to give you your money back. I said, you don't have to give it to me. Give somebody else who needs So, you know, I just listened and I knew you know, he might not be poor, but he didn't have his car card, and I was happy to help him. And I think, I think, be kind to people. Don't be so stingy all the time. Like, just do something good to others. Make others happy. If you get a good job, you know, go around and pay somebody's uh, 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 food and uh, buy a food for a homeless person and feed. Like, don't just take, 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 take. You know, that's really. What I, it's all about beautiful. love, love, love. Yes. Yeah, beautiful. that's what I am. And if people yeah. want to find your book, how can they find it? 
Thank you so much, Blake. Honestly, they can find it wherever books are sold, everywhere. You know, if you are a local in Sonoma County and Napa County and all of those places, I think there's Copperfield, there's um, all of the local bookstores that I've been going, go to the bookstore closest to your house, you know what I mean, and get it from them. If they don't have it, they'll, they'll, or you can order it and get it. Um, you can find it on Amazon as a place, and please leave a review. Review. Know that everyone who gets my book are part of my village, you know. And then if you want to need all the stories that I'm going to be telling, you know, there is a, a website that I have, just my first and last name, as it is in the book, shukrisal.com, and I put stories in there for free, and you can there, and you can subscribe there. And there, too, it tells you all of the places you can order. You can even order from Algonquin web page, you know, uh, Algonquin Publishing Books. So there's so many places. The book's available everywhere, by the way, everywhere. So that Perfect. is the blessing. And, yeah, thank you so much, Blake. Oh, I mean, thank you I so much. So, I'm so grateful yeah. for you and your work and your beautiful spirit. And what an honor it's been <laughs> to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Uh, it, it was, it was. Thank you. Have a lovely day. I appreciate all the things you have done today. Well, that about wraps up my interview with Shugri Syed Sal about her recently published memoir, The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. To listen to this show again or catch past episodes, go find Be More Now on kzox.org and click on the link to the show archives. And you can also go to Be More You, that's the letter B, M-O-R-E-Y-O-U dot net, as well as find Be More Now on Spotify and Apple Music. And I'll be back on the first Thursday of December, December 2nd to be exact. Thank you all so much for listening. Wishing you a lovely evening and weekend and holiday that's coming up. Be nice to everybody, be kind to yourself, and let's find a bridge. Wouldn't that be nice? Have a beautiful evening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Yankee.